Good morning, Covenant College. It's good to see you. It's really good to see you. Let's ask for God's assistance on our time together. So God, come to our assistance. Lord, make haste to help us. Glory to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and will be forever. I was very thankful to hear that on Monday, Matt Brown ended by pointing us to Psalm 1, because I thought, this is perfect. This gives me an entree into the very text that I want to talk about, which is Psalm 1. So let me read it for you. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his desire is for the instruction of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by springs of water that shall yield its fruit in its season, and its leaf shall not wither. Whatever he does shall prosper. Not so the ungodly, not so. But they are like the chaff which the wind casts away from the face of the earth. Therefore the ungodly will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the counsel of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly will perish. Pray with me. Almighty God, who pours out on all who desire it the spirit of grace and of supplication, deliver us when we draw near to you from coldness of heart and wanderings of mind, that with steadfast thoughts and kindled affections we may worship you in spirit and in truth. Give us a hunger for your word, and in that food satisfy our daily need today. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. So I was thinking about what one should do with a chapel talk, right? Like what is this genre that is a chapel talk? It's not really a sermon or a homily. Uh, do you really want to hear a lecture outside of class? Do you really want to hear a lecture inside class? I mean, let's be honest. And I was thinking about the first time that I asked Dr. Madweme about this thing called a chapel talk. And he may not remember this, but he looked at me and he said, Cliff, it's all in the title. And I said, okay, uh, what a beautiful phrase, but it's rife with ambiguity, isn't it? What, it's all in the title. Whatever could the good Dr. Doctor mean? So I glanced at a few of his titles. Casting out demons at Covenant College, or something close enough. Days of future past, X-Men, scientists, and the end of Covenant College. <laughs> like, I'm looking at these and I'm struck by the fact that this indeed, this creation of titles, is a skill and it's a skill clearly into which I and possibly the angels still desire to look. <laughs> but I'm inclined to interpret his statement 
it's all in the title a bit differently, emphasizing the word all, A-L-L. You see, in the history of Christianity, I'm a historical theologian after all, titles were generally less punchy and more, I don't know, what's the word, lengthy, right? They gave the reader an encapsulation of the whole in its very verbosity. Rather than give you a historical example and put you to sleep at this very moment, I came across a recent children's story collection that operates similarly. Here's its title. Noisy outlaws, unfriendly blobs, and some other things that aren't as scary, maybe, depending on how you feel about lost lands, stray cell phones, creatures from the sky, parents who disappear in Peru, a man named Lars Farf, and one other story we couldn't quite finish, so maybe you could help us out. Now that's a title. So to heed the good doctor doctor's advice, it's all in the title. Today I want to talk to you about the God speed of Psalm 1, or why only those in touch with the pace of God can recognize the slowness of the movement, imagery, and blessedness of the way of holiness in preparation for a life of prayer. You see, I've come to believe that the chapel talk is an act of spiritual direction, encouraging us all to slow down and pay attention to what God is doing now. At this moment, today, in this place, in your life and in my life, and to respond accordingly. So what better place to turn than to the Psalms? I begin class every day with a reading from the Psalms because I want to learn even more deeply myself the interwoven music of theology and prayer that is in them. So briefly this morning... I want to walk through Psalm 1 and the preparation it gives us for a life of holiness and prayer. And I say briefly intentionally because, as you know, I teach Augustine of Hippo and he can talk. So I promise I will not take a cue from him. Psalm 1 is a unique beginning to the Psalter, isn't it? The text that is meant to teach the church how to pray, the Psalms, doesn't actually begin with a prayer. Why is this? Eugene Peterson has suggested that this is because we are, quote, wrapped up in ourselves. We are knocked around by the world. The ways in which we are used to going about our business, using the language, uh, dealing with our neighbors, and thinking about God don't exactly disqualify us from prayer, but neither do they really help us that much. In prayer, we intend to leave the world of anxieties and enter a world of wonder. Leave a world of ego-centeredness and enter a God-centered world. Leave a world of problems and enter a world of mystery. And so I want us to notice three things about this psalm, and the first of which is the slow movement that's inherent to this psalm. The Old Testament scholar Walter Brueggemann classified Psalm 1 as a psalm of orientation. He means by this that the psalms are a way of describing the world as it is, with an anticipation that the world will continue to operate in just this way, or to use the language of Psalm 1 to operate with the choice of these two ways, the way of the ungodly or that of the righteous. 
But it's nevertheless surprising that as he continues, he says this, and I quote, These psalms are not the most interesting, for in them there is no great movement, no tension to resolve. And while I take his point that there's not very much tension to resolve in Psalm 1, there is great movement to it, and it's this slow movement that is the driving force of Psalm 1. Notice what it says in admonition to the one who wants to live a blessed life, that he or she should not walk in the counsel of the ungodly or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat or throne of scoffers. The movement of the psalmist's words mimic the very movements of our life. We should notice that although the end of each of those descriptions of the figure in the psalm is the same by the time we get to the end of the psalm, the description of the ungodly person develops and becomes more and more vivid as the psalm slows down. You're walking in the counsel of the ungodly, but you stand in the way of sinners and you sit in the seat of scornful scoffers. The ungodly has become verbally aggressive in his or her antagonism to God and the kingdom of God. And we'll return to this movement momentarily because it parallels the movement of the righteous and the godly. But the second thing that I want you to see is the slow imagery in the psalm. We have to recognize imagery for the power that it possesses in Christian scripture. I was reminded of this as I was thinking about the times uh, that I quite enjoyed picking up my youngest daughter, Caroline, from preschool just a few years ago. We would have our playlist of jams that we would put on in the car uh, on the way home. And, you know, I wanted to introduce her to the wonders of Credence Clearwater Revival and the Augustinianism of Johnny Cash. But she had, she had none of this. She had none of this. Her playlist consisted of two songs, Fight Song and Alicia Keys' This Girl is on Fire. And one evening, Caroline asked me, she said, Dad, why does it say that she is on fire? I said, I said honey, listen, you have to understand that this means that things are really going well for her, right? Like, like she, she's doing well. She said, no way, Dad. Things cannot be going well if she is on fire. <laughs> I'm happy to report that my daughter now gets the metaphor in this girl is on fire, but like my daughter, we should probe the imagery given to us in Psalm 1. So the one on the path of the blessed life, in probably the most famous imagery here, meditates on the law and instruction of the Lord. And we think quite quickly about meditation as constant repetition, going back to this place over and over and over again. But the word here suggests something like a low murmur or a moan or a growl like a dog enjoying the taste of a new bone. It's not merely repetition, but the meditation is born of 
desire and enjoyment, which makes the constant returning to this place a delight for us. And as the movement of the psalm continues, we're introduced to another image, that the one who meditates will move from sitting and meditating to standing, like a tree planted by springs of waters. We should not pass this imagery too quickly. Remember, even in Genesis, in the garden, it's the very imagery of trees that are the trees of life. The imagery of redemption, too, is arboreal. We are told of a shoot of Jesse who will rise up to redeem the people, such that God's people can then be replanted as the smallest of seeds, that when it is grown, it becomes the greatest of shrubs and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and makes a nest in its branches. We too, like the kingdom of God, are microcosmic trees planted by streams of water and may grow with fuller shrubbery and deeper and deeper roots. But the imagery of the trees urges us to consider the very life of a tree itself which doesn't only receive sustenance from the stream, rains too will come. Another image that draws us into language of sadness, grief. But the storm is good for the tree, and the way of the righteous, standing like trees, is not free from pain or suffering, sadness or grief. Do you see maybe how Psalm 1 is intended to prepare us for praying psalms of lament and grief? The way that such imagery connects our our orientation to the rest of the Psalter and with our own physical experience was brought back to my mind earlier this week. I'm so thankful to be at a place like Covenant College where you teach me as much as I teach you. And this is one of the things that happened this week. The tangible, sensible, experiential connection of such imagery was brought back to my mind as I said in one of your classmates' capstone presentations, her Pecha in the art department, where she described her interest in storms not merely as a phenomenon, but as an image. She said, I'm interested in how storms make humans feel, not simply how they make humans think. In her book, The Cultivated Life, the sociologist and spiritual director Susan Phillips suggests that this tree imagery, quote, draws our attention to variations due to seasons and weather and age, very life of the tree itself, and ultimately to the generativity of bearing fruit and enriching the soul. I'm sorry, the soil. Life in the garden entails rooted realities of interdependence and intimacy. These are requisite for the trees to grow. But these are not simply standing trees. Like the Ents of Tolkien, these are walking trees. And the movement of the righteous from sitting to meditate to standing like a tree, is now to traversing the path of the righteous, this way of holiness 
that extends through time and space and meets us today just where we are. And so finally, I want you to see the slow recognition of the blessed life. If we were to return to the earlier description of the Psalms as one of orientation, of setting our place for later interaction, then we must ask to what does Psalm 1 actually orient us? And here, I think we're thrust back to the very first word of Psalm 1, which sets the agenda, in my view, not just of Psalm 1, but of the entirety of the Psalter and perhaps all of Christian Scripture. It seeks to orient us to the blessed life, the good life. In the fourth century, the great Christian theologian Gregory of Nyssa wrote a theological treatise, not on the Psalms, on the inscriptions of the Psalms. Right? Did you get that? A whole treatise on just the inscriptions of individual Psalms. Right? He's plugging in deeply to these. Notice what he says about the goal of the Psalter. The goal of the virtuous life is blessedness. For everything that one takes pains in doing is always referable to some goal. Just as the art of the physician looks to health, and the aim of farming is to provide for life, so also the acquisition of virtue looks to the one who lives by it, becoming blessed. This is the summation and object of everything in relation to the good. And what is truly and properly apprehended as the good, then, would reasonably be called God. For so the great Paul designated him when he put blessed before all other words about God in one of his letters. He wrote the following, the blessed and only ruler, king of kings and lord of lords, who alone has immortality and dwells in unapproachable light. Likeness to God, therefore, is the definition of human blessedness. As we come to a close, I hope that we don't pass too quickly over the dynamic movement through the meditating, towering, running way of the righteous. It's likely when you hear the psalmist speak of the way of the righteous, you may be moved to hear the Lord Jesus who also says, I am the way. And this is the Bible's story of the way of holiness. The psalm ends by telling us, blessed is the man who traverses this way of righteousness, for the Lord knows the way of the righteous. Wow, that's a notoriously difficult word to translate, right? Does this mean that God understands the way of the righteous or that God comprehends the way of the righteous? Maybe that God is just aware that we're moving in this particular direction. I think I would be tempted to render it here as the Lord embraces the way of the righteous. For this is both the way that Jesus himself walked and the way that Jesus simply is. I am the way, a way blessed by God. In just such a phrase, the Lord embraces the way of the righteous. 
the psalmist is, I think, driving us to recognize that the Psalms, but really the whole Bible, is not simply a book to be read or studied or even to be prayed, though it is all of those things. The Scriptures are a story to be relived, filled with imagery not merely to make it an interesting story, but which stands away from me in some way. We're not given Scripture to be mere spectators or tourists in it. We must become inhabitants of its land, for this is the world as we know it. So when we are confronted with Psalm 1 and its method of preparing us to dialogue with God in prayer, then we must always ask, how does this imagery, how does this movement teach me to live? For how we spend our time reveals the way in which we are traveling. How we eat our meals and with whom we eat our meals reveals the way in which we are traveling. How we read our books for class or for pleasure still also reveals the way on which we are traveling. How we treat a stranger, the poor, the imprisoned, all of these bits of lived imagery in the Bible uncovers the very road on which we are traveling. And the Lord embraces the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly will perish. Pray with me. Father, keep us from traveling the way of the ungodly. Preserve us from sin and keep our tongues from scoffing but transform today in fresh ways our desire to walk the way of the righteous, the way already walked by our brother and Lord Jesus. Captivate us with your instruction. Cultivate us as trees of your kingdom, stretching tall enough to connect earth with heaven itself, rooted in community, but ready to move. Perfect in us the goodness of this blessed way in lives of mercy and peacemaking and faith and hope and love in lives of humility by your Spirit. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever. Amen.